What is the No Spin News all about? You know that this is a fact-based analysis news program. You know that. We avoid speculation. We don't do conspiracies here. We don't do party politics here. We're not nonpartisan. That's wrong. Not that. Okay, we are advocates for a stronger America and a more just society. We don't believe in communism. We don't believe in socialism. We don't believe in nihilism. We don't believe in the progressive woke culture. We think it is un-American. We don't support that. So you should know what we are. And it would then crystallize what we do. Listen to the No Spin News. Subscribe to Bill O'Reilly's podcast feed wherever podcasts are available. All right. Happy Monday. Uh, It is Halloween Eve. I hope you had a great weekend. Uh, You got your costume picked out. Do you know what you're going to be? I'm actually going to tell you what I'm going to be tomorrow. I'm so excited. It's so so ridiculously easy, but I'm dying to do it. And... um, the, my family who knows what I'm dressing up as thinks I'm being completely silly, but I think you'll get a kick out of it. I don't know. Maybe I'll wear it on air because I think it's funny. Uh, I don't know that you'll be able to get the whole effect. So I don't know. But it's it's in keeping with, with the spirit of the show. How's that as a hint? Um, a lot to talk to you today. Alan Dershowitz is about to join us. And boy, do we have a lot to get to with him uh, because these what's going on in these college campuses uh, with these pro-Hamas pro-Palestinian protesters, supporters, sympathizers. Uh, He knows very well what it's like to be on a college campus and be a lawyer. And so what rights do they have? Uh, Have they crossed the line? I want to get to him on that. Um, I want to talk to him about the Trump cases. Um, There's a lot of them, by the way. Uh, A brand new poll in Iowa and Mike Pence drops out. I will break this all down for you in a way that nobody else will. Thank goodness you're here. I have so much to share. Let's get into it. It's Monday. Let's kick off the week. This is the Sean Spicer Show. All right. Uh, Before I get to my conversation with Alan Dershowitz, let me just tell you this. Brand new poll out of Iowa. This explains, and I will explain why, Mike Pence dropped out uh, because it's important to understand this uh, and where his supporters supporter will go uh, and who else is rising, where the things plays out. I've said it all before. If Trump wins Iowa and New Hampshire uh, and can carry those first four early states, it's over. Some updates to share with you after my conversation with Alan Dershowitz. But uh, Alan Dershowitz is the perfect person to have a conversation with today because he has been a professor on college campuses for years. He has seen these kids, these administrators, the direction they're going in, and now you see it all over. Harvard, Yale, Cornell, protests, sympathizing with Hamas, the killing of innocent civilians. This is where the left is right now. You notice no one seems to be upset about this, by the way. Yeah, they say they are. But why are they not canceling them? Why aren't they being punished? Because secretly, they might express a little outrage here and there, but they're willing to cover for the left. But make no mistake about it. They treated people who served President Trump, who served the country, as pariahs. And yet, if you're out there protesting what Israel is doing to protect itself, 
to respond to an attack that was unprovoked that killed innocent civilians, that kidnapped and took hostage children. That's what these people are supporting, and they are paying no price. They are paying no price. Where's the outrage? Where's the canceling? Well, that just tells you everything. Because even these folks on the left who are upset, they're not doing anything about it. They wanted everybody canceled before because they were on the right. Now that this kind of within their family, these are their people, they don't have the same feelings, do they? Well, I'm going to talk to Alan Dershowitz about that. Also today, the 14th Amendment, we've talked about it before. There is a case in Colorado today trying to strip Donald Trump from being on the ballot because in the 14th Amendment, it says that anyone who participated in an insurrection which dates back to the Civil War, it's an officer of the United States, cannot be up for election, right? Alan Dershowitz has spoken about, about this before. I'm going to get him to follow up on this conversation. He is really going to give us some insight into that. Plus, what does everything mean in terms of what's going on in that case in Georgia, New York, D.C.? We have a lot to break down. So, Alan Dershowitz, you've heard him before. I love the guy because he could be, I could bring on a ton of Trump supporters, and I do. So don't worry, you're going to get your due. But the thing is, Alan Dershowitz is a avowed liberal. He voted for Hillary Clinton. He is not a Trump supporter, but he believes in the rule of law and of the Constitution. His book, Get Trump, predicted where all these things would go. He's ahead of the curve. He understands the legal arguments, and he's giving the legal advice that Trump's team should take. Now, remember, he sat in the well in Congress defending Donald Trump, not because he was a supporter, but because he believes in the rule of law. He's been ostracized, canceled, pushed out because he cares about the Constitution. So when he says, here's why Donald Trump isn't guilty of X or shouldn't, isn't going to be wrong or this will be overturned, that's, we, can, we should listen to that. That's what I love about this is it's not somebody who is just a sympathizer and supporter of Trump. This is someone who doesn't like him, who's telling him he's right. That's why I think it. He, uh, as you know, he's got a great book out called Get Trump, as I mentioned. He's got a ton of books. The guy is literally writing. But he's actually got a new book out that will come out in 30 weeks called War Against the Jews, How to End Hamas Barbarism, right? He is literally writing this book now about what we are seeing with our own eyes. So without further ado, let's bring in the professor himself. I'm Mike Slater from the podcast Politics by Faith. This is a crazy time in our country. It's stressful, a lot of anxiety, and it's going to get worse. And I realized that one of the things that helps me take away the stress is realizing that there's nothing new under the sun. So on this podcast, we take the news of the day and we run it through the Bible and other periods in history to realize that we've been through this before and we can rise above again. Politics by Faith, anywhere you listen to the podcast. Politics by Faith. Professor, congrats on the new book. I mean, I honestly, when you go to Amazon and look up Alan Dershowitz, there's like a continuation uh, of a page um, and it's funny because this isn't your first book on Israel. So congrats on that. I, I know what it's like to write a book. I just can't believe how quick you pump these things out. And they're so timely. Well, it took me uh, either four weeks or 65 years to write this book. I mean, I've been thinking about this thing for 65 years. And so the writing came easily. And the title is interesting. It wasn't the war against Israel. It's the war against the Jews, because that's what it's become. Look at what's going on in the world today, uh, in, in airports, in parts of uh, Russia, 
in, in, in universities. The Jews are under attack today. Yes, Israel is the primary focus, but this has manifested and revealed uh, 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 an extent of anti-Semitism that I have never thought I'd see after the Second World War. And the worst part of this is that the public reaction to these horrible events, the killing of 1,400 people, the public reaction really encourages Hamas to do it again because they're winning. They're winning at the UN. They're winning at colleges and universities. They're winning in many parts of the world today. And so the message to Hamas is, hey, you slaughtered babies, you raped women, and you're winning. So do it again and again and again, maybe next time against America. That's the message. So the thing that I find interesting, and I'm really intrigued by your answer to this, because when I was in the White House, there were questions about whether or not President Trump was tough enough in speaking out on anti-Semitism. And we pointed to many things that showed that 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 was clearly not the case, especially his support for Israel. But it's interesting to me, somebody like you, who is no, who is, does not hide your voting history or your, your personal positions on ideology being a liberal. Are you shocked that it, it, it's the left, it's the folks on college campuses, it's these younger folks, it's the Rashida Tlaibs in Congress that you're fighting? I, I mean, it's, it, you, I think if you had asked someone a year ago, they'd say, oh, the right wing is anti-Semitic. And yet this isn't coming from the right. This is all coming from the left in the United States. Well, I've been writing about that for more than 30 years since my book, Chutzpah and the Case for Israel. I've always said that the real problem is coming from not the center left, but the hard, hard, hard left, the Stalinist left. And these kids, let's not mince words, they are Stalinists. They don't believe in free speech. They don't believe in due process. They don't believe in tolerance. Uh, They would kill their enemies. They would imprison their enemies if they could. These are intolerant Stalinists of the hard left. They're fascists of the hard left. And it's been a brewing problem now for 30 or so years. It's come to the fore. And for me, the best proof is that most of these vicious attacks against Israel occurred even before Israel responded to the brutality. It was the brutality itself that brought out these bullies. No, Israel's weak now. 1,400 people have been killed, women have been raped, babies have been beheaded. This is the time to attack Jews. This is the time to attack Israel. It happened largely, the Harvard statement, the notorious Harvard statement, which reminds me of the statements made by Harvard and Yale students in the 1930s in support of Hitler and Harvard University's administration in support of Hitler and Nazi Germany. Nothing new here in that respect. But these attacks on Israel occurred largely before Israel even responded. So it's not about Gaza. It's not about the Palestinians. It's not about civilian deaths. It's about a hatred for Israel, the nation state of the Jewish people, and the Jewish people themselves. This has brought to the fore the worst anti-Semitism since the Holocaust. So, so let's kind of intersect all of your lives here. I mean, the book, your background on a university campus, Where's the line between, like I I read there's a story this morning, Cornell students are basically sheltering in place, are concerned for their safety because of attacks against Jews and Jewish um, uh, institutions and buildings on, on campus. Where's the line between free speech on college campuses and what some of these kids are doing that are supporting Hamas and the Palestinians? 
Well, the line's already been drawn. Uh, that is, if you can't say something negative about African-Americans or gays, if you can't allow the Ku Klux Klan or white racists to say things, then you can't allow anti-Jewish racists to say them. Whatever line the university has drawn about the Ku Klux Klan, the Nazi party, anti-feminists, anti-gays, that's the line. You can't have a double standard. So the issue is what I call the circle of civility or the circle of freedom of speech. If you're outside the circle, it doesn't matter whether you're right or you're left. If a, if the university says we're banning all hate speech, then it has to ban hate speech against Jews if it's going to ban hate speech against blacks. But you can't have a diversity, equity, whatever committee that only focuses on black people and not focuses on Jewish people. And so the ruling has to be identical. The universities have already created the standard. The point is apply it equally to Jews as to other uh, minority groups. So you see a lot of big donors saying that they're going to pull their support yeah. of some of these big universities and colleges. I kind of look to your point. I'm going, this was the threshold for you. Like if you're a John Huntsman mm. um, who is pulling back his family money from some of these, I'm saying this was the line for you. You didn't see the liberal DEI stuff that you're talking about. And suddenly now you're, you're, you're going, wow, these guys have lost it. I, I, I hate to say it. I'm not shocked after what I've seen by some of these college presidents and university leaders that suddenly this is what everyone's getting outraged. I, it, I'm glad they are. Don't get me wrong, but I can't believe this was the line. I mean, these guys have been uh, letting the tail wag the dog, if you will, in terms of the students running around telling the professors and the leadership of these universities what to do for a while. So the idea that it's shocking to some people now that this is the line they're drawing is to me the kind of the shocking part of the whole thing. No, I agree with you. I saw the line earlier. I stopped contributing to my three universities, City University of New York, which has become a horrible focal point of anti-Semitism, Yale Law School, where I went to, and Harvard, where I taught, and now Columbia faculty, 130 faculty members of Columbia signed a statement saying that these brutal rapes and, and beheadings were a military action making it sound like it was a lawful military action. At Cornell, you mentioned there was a, a posting that they were going to follow Jewish students home and slit their throats. Um, we're, we're seeing Kristallnacht, the prelude to Kristallnacht. And, you know, Kristallnacht in 1938, people didn't anticipate that it would lead to the Holocaust. After what happened now, there is no excuse. Anybody, anybody, who refused to condemn Hamas and is now condemning Israel, belongs in the category of bigot, anti-Semite, yeah. and acceptable. Uh, look, if, if, if you have criticized Hamas and then you say, well, but maybe Israel's overreacting. All right, I don't agree with that, but it's... The media has systematically lied to you. The Hunter Biden laptop story, the origin of COVID-19, the Trump-Russia collusion hoax, or how your money's being spent in Ukraine. Enough already with the lies. No more lies, hard truths only. That's what the Truth Podcast is all about. It's not standard conservative talking points. If you want that, go somewhere else. But if you want the hard truth delivered to you in a way that challenges you and will challenge me intellectually, you're not going to find anything like this on the internet. Subscribe, download now, the truth. A fair point to make. But if you didn't, the worst is Harvard. A Harvard, <laughs> 33 law students, 33 groups of students, they said, they praised basically Hamas for killing all these people. 
without before Israel killed a single civilian. Right. Now, that to me is blatant anti-Semitism, and you have to call it out. Now, I'm on a campaign, which is getting me a lot of controversy. I want everybody named. I don't want any student who signed these petitions, every faculty member, I want every law firm to ask themselves, do you really want your clients to be represented by people who support the raping of women, the beheading of, of children? I don't want, I don't want to be rep represented by such people. And I don't think any decent people do. So I urge law firms, look at these names, call yeah. them if you've offered them a job, ask them, do you agree with what Hamas did? And then make your decision. You so, make your so, so, so let me ask you this on a personal level. You and I, I've, I've, look, I, I think I tell my audience this all the time. You, you've made it very clear where you stand politically, but you are a firm believer in the constitution and the rule of law. And I, and I, I love that because I could have a million Trump supporters on this show to talk about why he did whatever, but with you, the beauty of it is, is that you're, you look at it blindly. You're saying, I don't really care if it's Donald Trump or Donald Smith. Here's what the law says and here's how it should be handled. You got canceled. You've gone through so many of the instances previously on, in our discussions about how you've been personally treated just for standing up for the rule of law. And yet to your point, you've got these college professors and liberals who are allowing uh, the the innocent, barbaric, savage treatment of women, of children, of babies who are not facing any consequence on a personal level. How does it make you feel that you did something that was standing up for our constitution and paid a price? And yet there's no seeming immediate punishment for people who support the killing of innocent civilians. I don't mind the price I pay. I have a thick skin. But it means that the students at Harvard can't hear me. I've been banned at Harvard, basically. I haven't been called back to Harvard since I defended Donald Trump. I've been banned at Yale. I've been banned at the 92nd Street Y. A big fuss was made because they canceled an anti-Israel speaker. This is a Jewish organization, the 92nd Street Y. They banned me. Temple Emanuel in New York has banned me. The Ramaz High School in New York, a Jewish high school, has banned me. They don't want me to make the case for Israel. And so it's not about me. It's about as a spokesperson who stands up for Israel, who has written six books on Israel, I can't send my message. CNN right. has banned me. They used to have me all the time talking about Israel. MSNBC has banned me. The New York Times op-ed pages have banned me. So it's not about me. It's about the public being deprived of a voice. I think it's, uh, it's a voice that many people want to hear, but they can't hear it because I've been canceled and banned by people on the left. Well, that's the beauty of you writing a book every couple of months on a relevant topic is that we can get your uh, your beliefs and understanding and, and insight by reading these these books. Well, you, gotta, you gotta order it in advance. You gotta pre-order it. Because, you know, I just finished writing the book literally yesterday. So it'll be out in just about three or four weeks and you can get it pre-ordered on Amazon. And that will send an important message to the cancelers that we, we want to hear this voice and maybe yeah. you this voice too. I'll tell you, you're absolutely right. I mean, having run the, the, the Amazon and all these bookstores, look at the pre-orders. So if you can go buy the professor's book, it does send a huge signal, not just, and I think this is the bigger thing. It's bigger than Alan Dershowitz. It sends a signal that you can't 
drown out these important in, in voices in our society that add so much. I do want to turn now to, to Donald Trump, uh, sure. where your last book continues to shed so much insight, Get Trump, because they're getting Trump. And today, a Colorado court is going to do what you and I have talked about in the past. It's going to start down this path of looking at whether he qualifies for the ballot because some are saying under the 14th, excuse me, under, under yeah, the 14th Amendment that he is disqualified. Now, you and I have talked about this before. It doesn't maim the president in, in this statute in the, uh, as an officer uh, of the United States. It, there's questions about whether officer is the president. I mean, we can go down a whole host of reasons, but the bottom line is what many people are saying is a sympathetic court in Colorado is looking at this. Where does this go from here legally? Because all signs are pointing to the fact that many courts, many states are looking at this ruling as a means to be able to say, well, now the courts have ruled we can take him off the ballot. Well, it will never be sustained by the United States Supreme Court. It would be really the end of presidential democracy in America. Uh, Millions and millions of people, not including me, but millions and millions of people want to vote for him. I have a constitutional right to vote against him, and I want to have that right. I don't want Colorado's secretary of state or some secretary of state in an area where they're not even elected to decide who's going to be uh, running for president in the United States. It is crystal clear that the 14th Amendment was not supposed to substitute for the impeachment provisions or the 25th Amendment, both of which have detailed procedures for how you prevent somebody from serving in office. The 14th Amendment has no procedures. It doesn't indicate how it works. All it basically says, if you served in the Civil War in the South, then you can't serve as an officer of the United States. And it was not intended to have application in the future. And, you know, these two candidates for office are both very old, but neither of them served in the (laughs) So I think that 14th Amendment has no application to uh, current uh, elections. And what could be more undemocratic than allowing a couple of swing states, purple states, secretaries of state, to determine the outcome of the election? What it would guarantee is that Americans would never accept this election. They would never accept an election in which Donald Trump was forced out by secretaries of state. It's Let's get back to this though. What what are the? Let's just play this out for me. Let's pretend we're in Alan Dershowitz's classroom that they allowed you back on Harvard for a minute. Uh, Let's just say the judge rules. I find that the Fourteenth Amendment is applicable here. Donald Trump cannot be on the ballot. What what are the? How does the Trump campaign respond to that procedurally? First, it uh, takes the case to the United States uh, Supreme Court, uh, which will rule, I believe, in its favor. Uh, then, of course, so that's just to explain this to the audience, I don't mean to, so you can literally so a Colorado court rules and then he gets to petition the U.S. Supreme Court right away. No, I think he probably seeks an emergency stay uh, from the lower courts in Colorado. And if they're denied, if the stay is denied, he can get it up to the Supreme Court very, very quickly within a couple of certainly a couple of weeks. Um, and the Supreme Court would grant the stay and say, no, pending resolution of this, he stays on the ballot. And, you know, obviously you can't stop people from writing in a name. He would still win the primaries, even if he wasn't on the ballot. And we're a year away from the election. So there's plenty of time for the Supreme Court to decide. So, as I mentioned, these other states and other secretaries of state, Michigan and et cetera, New Hampshire, are looking at Colorado 
as as a justification to potentially do this. If that happened in Colorado, if that they ruled that way and then there was a stay, is there any potential that they could still go down that path or would that ruling have an effect on them? No, they could still go down the path. I mean, the, so this uh, would be a whack-a-mole case for the Trump campaign. That's right. Uh, the courts in Colorado don't bind other states. Uh, uh, even the Circuit Court of Appeals only binds the circuit. It would have to be decided by the Supreme Court. But I think the Supreme Court would decide uh, to grant the stay and to allow the name to appear on the ballot pending an ultimate by the court. And I'm confident that the Supreme Court, although it's ruled against Trump on many, many, many cases, would not rule that the 14th Amendment allows the Secretary of State without any procedural safeguards to simply take his person's name off the ballot if he has uh, so many votes. But so just so I'm clear on this, Colorado rules that Trump can't be on the ballot. He petitions the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court stays this pending resolution. If New Hampshire, Michigan, et cetera, wanted to go down that path, would that stay by the Supreme Court that was issued in the Colorado case apply to other states? Or would the the Trump campaign have to play whack-a-mole with each state going forward and petition the Supreme Court as well? One of the things that the Trump people would do is ask the Supreme Court for a broad stay. But if this give it, then they'd have to play whack-a-mole. And if the Colorado court does rule that he's uh, ineligible, there would be enormous political pressures on other states to do the same thing. So then we really into, you know, in my in my uh, podcast, I call it the Der Show, I give out bananas. Uh, and we're up to six on a scale of 10 before we become a banana republic. <laughs> if Colorado were to rule, it would skip seven and go right to eight and perhaps get close to nine. And it would get to 10 if a court were ever to say, if the Supreme Court were ever to say that a president could be disqualified by a secretary of state under the 14th Amendment. That would turn us fully into a banana republic. I don't think it's going to happen. I, I, I mean, I honestly can't believe that we're having a serious discussion with removing somebody from a ballot for a crime that they haven't even been charged with, uh, never mind the, the constitutional interpretation of this. But, but I, go ahead like Larry Tribe, Professor Lawrence Tribe, judges like Judge Lutek, result-oriented people who define the Constitution to mean whatever they want it to mean. And uh, what they're doing is twisting the Constitution, weaponizing the 14th Amendment, turning it into a partisan tool. Um, It's part of the problem what's going on in universities. It's related to what's going on with Israel today. American universities and law schools have become weaponized. They've been turned into weapons to be used by the radical, woke, progressive, hard left against the Constitution, against Americans, against Jews, against Israel, and against decency, and against the Judeo-Christian tradition, and against Madison and the Constitution. That's how dangerous this is. Yeah. Um, I I, I actually, and I know this is a political question, not a legal question, but do you think it would be important for the President of the United States, Joe Biden, to come out early and say, I don't. I mean, it's amazing to me as a former White House press secretary that no one has asked the current press secretary about this. I mean, which just tells you where the press is that. But I would have gotten asked a million times, does the President Trump believe that, that you know, would he support the ruling on this or what? But the idea that Biden hasn't had to speak out against this is somewhat amazing to me. He should, and he should volunteer. And he should say, I want to be Donald Trump fair and square. Right. I don't need, I don't need 14th Amendment. I, I'm a better candidate. Vote for me. That's what he should be saying. 
And um, I, I would hope as a result of this show and what you've been saying, that at least a journalist will ask him that question and he's going to have to answer it that way. I don't think, I mean, he could try to vacillate and say, well, this is a legal question, a constitutional question. I'll leave it to my attorney general to answer. But I think it would be much better if he said, I want to beat Trump. I do want to pivot, if we can, to the Georgia case. Um, let me just start with this. Jenna Ellis, Sidney Powell, and this guy, Chesborough, I, Chesborough, I can't, uh, all former attorneys of Donald Trump have taken plea deals in the Fulton County, Georgia case uh, with the DA down there, Fannie Williams. Um, what, what impact does that have specifically because as attorneys for Donald Trump, they're still bound by attorney client privilege. So what could they potentially offer, uh, the DA down there that would make the DA want to make a deal with them? Well, the symbolic nature of making a deal is very important, but remember that it's going to backfire because none of these three people are going to be able to testify that Donald Trump told me specifically that he knew he lost the election. That would be the key. Now, CNN the other day had one of its main commentators on CNN look into the camera and tell a deliberate lie. What she said to the American public is, oh, don't worry about that. Donald Trump told other people who testified that he knew that the election was lost. That is a lie. I've challenged CNN. Name the person. I've followed this case very carefully. There is no evidence that Donald Trump ever told anybody that he knew that the election was lost legitimately. He doesn't believe that. He's right. wrong, but he doesn't believe that. And CNN has totally distorted the evidence against him by having one of its commentators just lie and say, oh, there are other witnesses. There is no witness that I'm aware of, and I follow this case very carefully, who will testify, Donald Trump told me, looked me in the eye, and said, I know I lost this election fair and square. I'm now going to lie and deceive and do everything. No, Donald Trump mistakenly thinks he won the election. And these witnesses are not going to be able to undercut them. All they're going to be able to say is, I told Donald Trump he lost the election. But then next question, what did Trump say? Well, Trump disagreed and he thought he won the election. And so the issue that's going to be presented to the jury in, uh, in, in two of the cases is, did Donald Trump subjectively know and understand and realize that he had lost the election fair and square? And the evidence won't support that unless there's something missing that I'm not aware of. So knowing what you know, and I know this is difficult to answer, but do you think it was smart for those folks to cut the deals that they did? I think they were so frightened. Remember, yeah. law, they have um, mandatory prison terms if they're convicted. But let's remember another thing. Um, many years ago, I coined the following phrase. I said that uh, flip witnesses not only sing, they often compose, uh, <laughs> often make up or exaggerate because they want to say what the prosecution wants to hear. Otherwise, they won't get the deal. And so good defense attorneys have a way of dealing with flip witnesses who've made deals. I mean, they'll turn in their mother if they have to make a deal. I tell right. my all the time, if you're indicted along with somebody else, assume they're going to flip. I don't care how are you. Obviously, Donald Trump learned that with Cohen and learned it with other people as well. You can't when it comes flipping the pressure of life imprisonment. Yeah, by the way, I do, I'll, I'll get to Cohen in a second, but I agree with you. These folks were facing felony charges, uh, potential prison time, 
and they get off with a misdemeanor and a fine, I would be like, okay, fine. I get it. Um, let me just tweak though, that Mark Meadows, the former president's chief of staff, struck an immunity deal. What What is the distinction there? Why does that matter? And what, because here's what I think is unique about Meadows. The speculation is that Meadows is going to say exactly what, you know, that Trump told him potentially that he, uh, that he knew he lost. But in Meadows' own book that he wrote, he says Trump didn't do that. So Meadows is going to be, you know, has to pick a side. Well, I think he is going to, he has immunity and they can't take the immunity away from him as long as he tells the truth. And he's going to stick to what he said in his book. I, I don't think he's going to lie and face the potential of a perjury prosecution if he says, whoops, I got it wrong in my book. I do remember now on this and this day that Trump took me into a little private room on the side and said, don't tell anybody, but I really know I lost this election. Do you believe that happened? I don't believe that no. happened. And I don't believe that there is going to be anybody who can truthfully testify that Donald Trump told them the opposite of what he's told everybody else, namely that he honestly, but mistakenly, believes he won the election. Right. And that's the thing is that I still don't get this. I, I know from my conversation with President Trump that many of the people around him convinced him that they had seen things, that they had watched things happen, et cetera, and that there was malfeasance and um, all sorts of bad things that had happened. Whether or not that, that, what, that, that doesn't make him culpable that he listened to them. And these folks who are coming forward are all saying, well, we were capable attorneys back then. We believe this. We advised our client. He believed what we told him. And now we're going to plead guilty. I just, I think that to go after somebody, I mean, I, I know that from my stake, I, I've, you know, the last five years had an, a business attorneys, attorneys when I went to deal with the Mueller situation. And I would look at them and say, okay, how does the process play? What do I say? I believe them the same way that I, when I go in and a doctor tells me, hey, this is the, the issue. Here's the diagnosis. My view is that's why you're the doctor and I'm not. So you can't. I blame Trump for taking the advice of his counsel. One of the biggest victims here is going to be the lawyer-client privilege. People are not going to trust their lawyers anymore. People are going to say, oh my God, if you tell your lawyer something and there's enough pressure, your lawyer will be compelled to disclose the deepest, darkest secrets. And that's not what the Sixth Amendment provides. That's not what the American legal system provides. What you tell your lawyer should be sacrosanct yeah. and should be disclosed. Now, there is an exception if you did it as part of a crime, but that begs the question, if he actually believed that he was uh, the winner in the election, even though he was wrong, that would not satisfy the intent requirement under uh, recent Supreme Court decisions. Yeah. Uh, let's go north to New York, to that case up there for a second. Last week, Donald Trump was in court as Michael Cohen testified. I, I don't, I, I was asked about this on a couple interviews. I uh, and people said, why do you think he was there? And I, I said, well, I, I assume it's because he wanted to stare him down. I don't get, if you're Donald Trump, you're running for president of the United States, you got four cases pending. Why do you go to New York just to stand there and listen to Michael Cohen? Was there any legal strategy that you can see? No, and it backfired because he ended up with a $10,000 fine, uh, which will be reversed on appeal. Again, the courts will not tolerate these kind of overbroad um, uh, uh, gag orders, particularly the one in New York. This is not even a jury trial. So Trump calls the judge a name. Uh, he calls the prosecutor a name. Hey, 
grow a pair. Again, that's what you are. You have a robe. You're the judge. You're protected. You don't need a gag order. You don't need to violate my First Amendment rights. Because remember, it's not only his First Amendment right to speak. It's my First Amendment right to hear what he has to say. And you're depriving me and the American public of the right to hear what Donald Trump has to say, to ignore it if you want to, or to take it seriously if you want to. But the First Amendment has two facets, the speaker's right to speak and the listener's right to hear. And this judge is denying me and you our right to hear Donald Trump. So in in this particular case, you mentioned the gag order. What court, who who reverses it? How, How quick and where and when and how? Well, already the judge in Washington refused to grant the stay. She right. said the order will stay in effect. We'll see what happens in New York. The New York case is far, far more egregious to stay because there's no jury trial. So I think that will be reversed rather quickly. Uh, but as By you say with Wacomole, it takes time to go from court to court to court. But eventually the Supreme Court will say, no, you can't impose gag orders on a presumptively innocent defendant, particularly in a civil case like the one in New York. So I think I think the gag order will be reversed, but it may take some time. Well, I mean, can it be done while he's facing trial? Yes. Oh, yes. It's being yeah. done now. It sounds, like, it sounds like in all of this discussion, the Supreme Court should just basically set aside a few weeks and be like, all right, Donald Trump, tell us all the issues you need to resolve, and we'll just run through them for like seven days. Well, and the Supreme Court so far has not been Donald Trump's friend. Uh, but as of now, with these cases, I think they will see that it's not Donald Trump. It's the American public that suffers from gag orders. It's the American public that suffers when you deny anybody their due process rights, when you have trials in places where the jury veneer is so loaded. D.C., 95% of potential jurors hate Donald Trump. New York, 75. Fulton County, probably 65. That's not a level playing field. And uh, the only place where it sounds like there might be a level playing field is in Palm Beach County. And we'll see what happens. <laughs> All right. Professor Alan Dershowitz, always love the conversations. So go on Amazon now, buy Get Trump. You'll understand all the cases and where they will end up because that's the beautiful thing. It's like the Powerball. Alan Dershowitz gets you there and tells you what's going to really happen. And then get ahead of, of what's happening Um Go on Amazon while you're there. Pre-order War Against the Jews, How to End Hamas Barbarism. That is pre-order. It sends a signal to everyone that we're not going to let a voice of this importance get canceled. Uh, Professor, always great to be with you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much. I love that conversation with Alan Dershowitz, as I said at the beginning, because he's not some Trump lover. He tells us how it is. What he's saying about Israel and what's going on, I mean, my goodness, these college presidents, what a bunch of wusses allowing these kids to run around and, and wag the dog, right? The tail is wagging the dog. The students want to get out there. And I, I mean, this is the problem, that these kids are going to you know, think that they're right. No one's calling them out for defending the brutal killing of innocent people. Unbelievably sad. And the media is playing this so careful because they got to be careful. And now the Biden administration, you watch how they do this. They're trying to balance because they realize he's in big trouble. In states like Michigan, you think Rashida Tlaib is just randomly out there spewing stuff? She knows that her constituents largely support this. Joe Biden knows that he's alienating a huge constituency in Michigan. So now they're doing what they have to do. They're saying, 
that that they they're trying to you know talk about Israel shouldn't overstep and kill civilians. I want to uh, the other big Trump news is Iowa. It's what's happening in uh, the state. There we saw over the weekend, Mike Pence. He's out. He dropped out of the race. Now the big question is why? Well, he's out because he ran out of money. The last report shows that Pence raised $3.3 million during the third quarter, right? And he also had over $600,000 in debt. He ended September with just $1.2 million cash on hand. Um, that is a problem uh, for him. Uh, by comparison, DeSantis had brought in $15 million. And so you can see Pence was having a money problem. Okay, well, why is he having a money problem? A brand new poll out today says why. Let me give you the top line numbers. Donald Trump right now is sitting at 43% in Iowa among caucus goes, 43%. The next two people are at 16, DeSantis and Haley. Let me get that to you in a minute because I want to explain the Pence piece of this. Why did Mike Pence drop out? Because in the latest poll, Mike Pence was at 2%. Two, 2%. Okay, here's the bigger problem. In August, when they did the same poll, he was at six. He's going in the wrong direction. Now, I've made it very clear from the get-go that Pence and DeSantis are all in in Iowa. If they don't do well there, they're done. Pence saw the writing on the wall. He was moving in the wrong direction. He was going to get killed. You don't even qualify for delegates until you hit 10%. So he was, he was going to walk out of there, and he's moving backwards. He had no money and bleeding support. I was a huge evangelical state for caucus goers. Mike Pence was getting one, 2% of caucus goers that were evangelical. That's his wheelhouse. That's what he was supposed to do well with. He's getting crushed. Let me tell you about the other movement in the poll though. Right now, DeSantis, since the last poll is down three, he was up at 19, he's down to 16. Trump actually has gained a point. He was at 42, he went to 43. Here's the big movement. Nikki Haley was at 6% in August. She's at 16 now, up 10% right now. And, and that's the thing. Those are the only three, by the way, in double digits. Tim Scott has lost two points. He was at seven. Chris Christie, who's not really running in Iowa, no surprise. He lost a point. He's at four. He was at five. Vivek Ramaswamy at four. Doug Bergam at three, Mike Pence, as I mentioned, at two, and Asa Hutchinson registering at 1%. But Pence had lost four points. He was going in the wrong direction. He had no hope, so he had to get out. I think that's the important thing to note there. And as I said, Trump remains strong. Uh, he is the guy to beat. DeSantis fading quick. Haley making a move, and I think that's going to be the person to watch. You notice the attack ads from DeSantis are now mostly focused on Haley. They know this. If they want this to be a one-on-one -on -one race against Trump, they got to make sure that they blunt any movement by her. Anyway, we're going to continue to break this down all week. Mike Pence is out. What does that mean for the debate, et cetera? Anyway, thank you for kicking off your week with us. A lot to break down. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dirk. Later this week, Morgan Ortegas is going to talk to us about what's going on in Israel. Dinesh D'Souza is going to be here. This is going to be a big week. Andrew Clavin, it's going to be awesome. I appreciate you watching and sharing. Thank you for everything that you're doing. I look forward to seeing you right back here tomorrow on The Sean Spicer Show.